0: Would you uh, open your Bibles with me, please, to Philippians chapter 3. There are certain individuals in this room who uh, have heard this before. Um, A month ago, I was asked to share at family camp at Camp Nathaniel. Thankfully, that wasn't the week of the flood. Um, I don't swim, and that might have not been a good thing. But anyway... I had the privilege of sharing with them for uh, seven different sessions, or sermons if you will, uh, all around Philippians chapter 3. And uh, the passage has been an enormous blessing to me personally, and to some who heard it, they commented that way too. Um, there is a heartbeat in chapter 3 that I hope we all can match. As we read what Paul has said here, um, and typically I don't just drag one sermon from one place to another place and just use it like that, but uh, um, we worked on this. I, I spent some time on this. I say we because even my Wednesday night group worked on this with us because we went through the study first and discussed a lot of things in this chapter before I went and put some of these thoughts together. And uh, with that said... Uh, it's valuable. It's valuable to all of us, and I hope you find it so, too. Uh, and that's the only reason why I say, well, I'd want to use this and share it with you, so you've heard what happened a month ago when I shared it with another group. Um, in Philippians chapter 3, it starts in verse number 1, and I'm just going to start reading until I have reached all the way to the end. That's 21 verses. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, but it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worships in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else had a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord from whom I have suffered the loss of all my things, and count them but rubbish, so that I might gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I might know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it, or have already become perfect. I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if, anything you, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ." whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. I'm going to attempt that in seven sermons. That's a mouthful, folks. Have you noticed? There is a ton of information here that we are called to, and we're going to spend some time in this. Heavenly Father, help us, we pray, as we submit to your word. It's going to change our lives. It always does, but that's your business, and that's what you do is change lives. And so we sit before you and ask that you might do that work in our hearts right now, As we open up this text, as we glean from it a little today, and in the days to come, I pray, Lord, that you might draw us ever closer to you. And thank you for the process you take us through to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, about a month or so ago, I received a telephone call, and I might have said this, I don't remember, Uh, but uh, an individual had called wanting to find out more about our fellowship, our church. And uh, I felt like I was uh, being ordained by the question he kept asking me. They were really good questions, solid, wonderful questions. And, and one side of me kept saying, wow, this guy is really sharp. The other side saying, this guy's a, a fraud. He's, in, he's trying to get into something. I don't know what it is. But I didn't know what to do, but I kept talking to him. And one of the last questions he raised as he was asking questions about doctrinal things and all that, he said, if I were in your church for 25 years, what would I be like at the end of 25 years? I thought, wow, that's a pretty good question. I don't know if many of us think that way. What would I be like? Am I different 25 years out for having spent time here in this fellowship? What would that be? I answered him in two words. Like Christ. That's what I hope we would be in 25 years if we spent time fellowshipping like this. More like Christ. More like Christ. After all, isn't that what we're supposed to be? More like Christ. Those two words I'm going to explore with you. To encourage you. Maybe inspire you. Two words that I'm going to keep bringing to your attention, your understanding. Hopefully it goes from here and implants deep in the heart. More Christ. More Christ. There are a lot of phrases given to simplify the message of the book of Philippians. If you carry a Schofield study Bible, and some of you do, you'll find on the front page of the chapters, it says the theme is Christian experience. If you read many commentaries, you'll find many of them leaning toward joy, because it says often in here, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. It is clear to me from the context, and I know you've read Philippians before, I would encourage you to read it again this week. I would also encourage you to stay in chapter 3 for many weeks. Just read it, okay? Just read it. But if you've read it before and you know somewhat of the context of this book, Paul was in jail at the time of writing this book. It's interesting that even the first time Paul went into Philippi, he ended up in jail. And I don't think it's because he liked orange. It just seemed that every time Paul was near or ministering to the Philippian church, he was incarcerated because of his faith. And as Paul is writing from that, and you read this letter, and you find such a wonderful thing he says to the Philippians, that what he expresses here is so important. He is going to say, I'm going to put it this way, what really counts. What Paul had before him was the possibilities of the execution. That was going on, by the way. In Rome where he was, he was in prison in Caesarea for two years at the close of the book of Acts. If you read through that, you'll see that. He appealed to Caesar in his trial. And the last part of the book of Acts is his ship journey on his way up to Rome. And there he would stay for the next two years waiting trial. While he's there, he writes several letters. He writes one to the Colossian church. He writes one to the Ephesian church. He writes one to a man named Philemon who was in the Colossian church. In all of those, he states he anticipates being released, but there was a Caesar named Nero on the throne. And who knows what that might come to, and there's no telling what he might do. Paul is there, if you read the earlier part of the Philippian book, with the hopes I'm going to be released. He been told Philemon in his book, get the house ready, I'm coming. But at the same time, he kept realizing the Lord might have a different plan. And this might be the end of the road. He had a lot of time to reflect, is what I'm going to express to you. With life in a balance like that, and not being able to think through... Uh, every single detail of his ministry, he had to keep sending his men out to, to go and find out what's going on in Thessalonica, what's going on in Corinth, what's going. and these letters and these people were coming back and forth. I think he had a lot of time to think about what is really, after all, the most important things in this life. What are the most important things in this life? And how do you communicate that to somebody you love dearly? He never defended himself before the Philippian church, like he did in other letters. He, he didn't have to beg for financial assistance from the Philippian church, because they were very generous to him. And he makes reference to that earlier in the book. He didn't spend countless hours and chapters correcting them, because they already served with a sense of maturity in Christ. So he gets down to, real simply... What is the essential number one for the Christian who already is serving and is already maturing? What do they need? More Christ. He sets a tone for that in chapter number one. Go back with me to verse 20 and 21. As he's speaking about his hope that maybe here be released soon, he says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That sets the tone for the entire chapter 3. If you give me a few minutes here, which I know you will, because there you are, and here I am. I'm going to show you Paul's mentality behind this. Paul's mentality for more Christ. And I do believe this is beneficial for all of us. And and so I'm going to ask again, as we're going through this series, it's not a very long one, but uh, please read the book of Philippians in its entirety. Take the time to do that. And then go back over chapter 3 several times, several times, several times, over several days. The way God has designed us to grow in maturity to the image of Christ is an amazing thing to understand. He's already stated that His Spirit is at work within us right now to conform us to the image of Christ. Romans 8 says so. We also know from 1 John chapter 3 that uh, when we shall see Him, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. I long for that day. That's going to be a great day. Therefore, if that's what God has in store for us, that we're to be like Christ, we're to grow in His image, and someday we we'll are be like Him, shouldn't we have the desire for it now? Shouldn't we be wanting to grow now, in our understanding and in, in our conformity to Christ, shouldn't that be our heart's beat right now? We're all in a process. I know that. And it's just safe to conclude this. No matter where you are along the way, if you're along the lines of those who are more mature or those who seem to have more to do to get up to that level. I think that was a nice way to say it. I didn't want to say, unless you're just plain old immature, but uh, if you're somewhere in between these points of growing to be like Christ, wouldn't you also conclude that all of us, no matter where we are, need more of Christ? We need it. Maybe you've felt hunger pangs in your soul before. Maybe you felt that there was something else for you to do, a new level of understanding, uh, a deeper commitment. Maybe you've gone through that and thought that through. And you tried to satisfy yourself with the latest spiritual paperback or another Bible study or another ministry in the church. And you still know that there's something greater still. It's found in the word More. More. Not simply more, like fill up on anything. Because quite honestly, you could eat a whole plate of sawdust, but it's not going to really do you much good. I think it might be really bad for you. But that's not simply more, just give me something to stuff in me. But as you're going to see Paul's heartbeat here, more of Christ. More of Christ. Because all those other things are avenues toward him, you see? If you spend all your time on the avenue, you miss the one who you're looking for. Because you've emphasized all these other things. And Paul's going to show you all these other things really don't count for much. If Christ isn't the one thing you want. More of Him. In chapter number three, if you work through this, there's a lot of different ways to break up a chapter and outline it and and work through things. And what I chose to do is work through this. Outline of chapter 3, based on four commands Paul gives in this chapter. That might sound amazing with all the material. He only commands four things. And these four things are powerful. In the very first verse, he tells you to keep on being joyful. In the second verse, no, in verse, yeah, verse 2. Three times, he says... Beware. Keep on bewaring is the phrase I'm going to use. Now, I looked that up uh, to see if bewaring was a good word for my outline. And I found that uh, Google told me, it's not the ordinary use of a word. And I said, okay. But it said, your Scrabble score will be 14. (laughs) I said, okay. So I'll take that. Uh, But uh, keep on bewaring is the second set of commands. The third one is in verse seventeen. It jumps quite away. Keep on becoming, and then the last one in verse seventeen as well. Keep on beholding, and again, I've I've given you a word there that you're not going to find in there, but you will when you get there. Uh, keep on being joyful. Keep on bewaring. Keep on becoming. Keep on beholding. The four things that Paul stresses to show you his mentality in Christ, and then his appeal that you do it too. He doesn't just set before you a display and say, here's what I do. Pat me on the back. But rather, as Paul goes through this chapter, you're going to feel it. You're going to hear it. It's going to tug at you. He's going to say, come with me. Come with me. Follow on to more Christ. More Christ. Let's just take a look at this uh, phrase again. As I gave it to you in verse number one, for me to... Live as Christ, and to die is gain. Let me explain that to you just for a few minutes here. In chapter 3, I know I'm going back and forth, but hang on to that. Chapter 3, 7 through 11, we see what Paul's thinking as he writes. Whatsoever things were gained to me, I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value "...of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and come from but rubbish, so that I might gain Christ, that, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, for that which is faith in Christ, the righteousness, righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I might know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. You want to know what Paul thinks? You want to dig into his brain for a few minutes? They say in history that uh, when Einstein died, they did an autopsy, and apparently somebody uh, thought they'd take the brain and figure out the source of genius. And so they looked for that. We're not going to... Remove Paul's brain here, obviously. But we do want to find out what he thought. And you know what's interesting to me? God said, write it down, Paul, so I can give it to everybody else too. So they could see how you think. Whatever things were gain. Mark that word. Verse 7. Whatever things were gain, to me I count as loss for Christ. This is a rather interesting phrase. Gain. It goes back to that verse 21 we read in chapter 1. For me to live is Christ, to die is? Gain. Gain. It's the word kurdos in the Greek. It's a word for a coin collected. Not the coin itself, but the collection of it. In other words, receiving. When you receive coins, if you have... One, that's great. If you have two, you've doubled it. That's gain. It's the profit side of the word. And curdeno is also a verb that relates to kardos. Kurdeno is the action of profiting, what you do to gain. It's interesting in scripture that that word shows up very few times, and the majority of them is by the Apostle Paul. It's a concept that he liked to use and express in this way. Matter of fact, he used it heavily in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In 1 Corinthians 9, he was being questioned on his apostleship. He was being accused of all kinds of different things. He was uh, accused of going into the ministry for monetary gain. And so he starts to write to them in 1 Corinthians 9. You can follow along. I'm going to read to you about six verses here. First Corinthians 9, 1-6. He says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not you my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle to others, I am doubtless one to you, for the seal of my apostleship is you in the Lord. Remember, he's talking to Corinthians here. My answer to them that examine me is this Do we have the power to eat, the power to drink? Do we not have the power to lead about a sister, a wife as well as other apostles, as the brethren of our Lord does and as Peter does? Or is only I and Barnabas the ones that don't have the power to do this or, or we don't have the power to stop working? He smooths it out a little bit in this way in verse number 6. He says, Is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Now, you know Paul was a tent maker, right? We get the word tent maker from what he built. Guess what he made? Tents. All right? It's real simple. But Paul was a tent maker and he made tents in order to supplement his ministry. That's good. He also used that for ministry because he encountered Priscilla and Quilla in that process. Of tent making. But did he do that because he was forced to do that? Did he have to work as a tent maker to support his ministry because he had no rights to ask for ministry to be provided for him in funds? Did he have the right to be supported by other people in his ministry? And so he goes into this passage in 1 Corinthians 9, interestingly, with very natural solutions. He shows you illustrations here. He says, if you have a soldier and he goes off to war, don't you pay him? How many of you would like to go into battle without being paid? Nobody? I'm not surprised. He says, if you own a vineyard, are you allowed to eat of your own fruit? If you're a shepherd... Are you allowed to milk those animals and and enjoy the milk yourself? I don't know if they like it, but... He asks these questions. Who goes into warfare at any time at his own charges? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat of the fruit? Who feeds a flock and doesn't eat of the milk of the flock? He goes on to this sense. When the Law of Moses came out, it said there were rights to income from work. Oxen... Eating the corn while they tread. Plowmen waiting for the harvest. The thresher taking home the wheat. He does that in verse 8, 9, and 10. And he asks those simple questions. Don't they have the right to it? And then he comes to his conclusion. He says, if we have sown to you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we reap from you carnal things? Finances. Now, I'm not trying to argue in any way this this argument for ministry income and stuff. That's not my point today. But Paul's using a term all the way through there, and it's the word gain. Gain, 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 gain. He argues all the way through this text that he has the perfect right to expect an income from ministry. However, get into his mind for a minute. All that said and stated, Paul said in verse 15 through 17 to the Corinthians, I made up my mind that I will not profit in any monetary way from my ministry to you. He said, I would even die than reverse this thinking because I have a different reward. I have a different gain. What is my reward? He says in verse 18. This is simple. When I preach the gospel, I make the gospel of Christ without charge. I do not abuse my power in the gospel, for though I may be free of all men, yet I've made myself servant of all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became a Jew, so that I might gain the Jews. And to those under the law, I came under the law, so that I might gain them under the law. And if I went to those outside the law, as if I was outside the law, but I'm still on a law to God. I'm under law to Christ. But I want to gain them that are without law. To the weak, I want to become weak. That I might gain the weak. I have made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. What was his reward? What was he profiting in this? But that life is change forever. You see? That's worth a whole lot more to him than anything else. He says, this is what I want to do. I want to gain this thing. I want to gain this thing in my ministry. That people come to know Christ. That they come to faith in Christ. Is that your gain? That was Paul's. That was Paul's. Edwards, uh, in his commentary, said this. He refused payment in money that he might make the greater gain in souls. So here's his profit, his reward, his pay, his profit, however you want to call it. It was found in those who came to know Christ. That was his coin. That was his coin in ministry. That's why he did what he did. Now, I told you. Paul employed this word more than anybody else, and the next time he picks it up is in Philippians. Chapter 1, 21, and chapter 3, verse 7. And that's where it comes back. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This Greek text is very interesting. For me to keep on living, it literally says, for me to keep on living, Christ. Christ. I'd love to hear what you'd put after that phrase for me to keep on living. Paul said, Christ. And then he says, and for me to die is... He said, gain. Yes, gain. What is gain? It's more of the same. It's more of the same. Whatever he was looking for, he gets more. What did Paul wanted more than anything in life? Christ. So what was he looking for in death? More Christ. That was his gain. He wanted nothing else but more Christ. Now, if you want to know his mentality in this, this is how he lived. This is what he's saying in chapter 3. These things used to be my gain, he said. They used to be my coin. They were my reward. They were my pay. They were my profit. But I turn them all aside and count them as loss, because I want Christ. If you look at this text carefully, and as you read, you can do this, but you will find most of this chapter, Paul, especially from verse 4 through chapter, or verse 14, he says, I, a lot. I, I, I. And he's not boasting. He's not self-centered. But it's such a great tool when you're trying to teach others to use an example. And he chose himself as an example here. And it has value on several fronts, if you will, for a minute. It's that he doesn't have to be confrontational with the Philippians. Spiritual growth is not only expected, but at times we find it commanded in Scripture, don't we? Grow! You want Peter's last couple words of his letters? Grow! I always put that passion in there. That's Peter. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul didn't write, What's wrong with you guys? When he's writing these words. Instead, he sets himself up as an example. And he allows for them to look at his life and to see his mindset. And then after they see the full picture of who Paul is, that portrait... Of Paul and his willingness to live for Christ and to die for more Christ. He says, later in the chapter, us. And our and we. Because what he's done is now he's shown them. And then he's pulling them in. And says, now come and follow with me. But you have to know, what is it that he looks at? What is this Paul that we're trying to gain? Paul, what is it that we're looking at? Picture chapter 3, and I know you've heard this somewhat before, but picture chapter 3 like a ledger. Like a ledger, an accounting way of visibly showing profit or loss. On one side of the ledger are all the things that are counted as profits to the account. On the other side of the ledger are all those things that are counted as losses to the account. When you get into the reality of what Paul is saying here is that he took everything on this side of the ledger that he had lived for and worked for and struggled for and he grabs them all and he slides them over to this side as losses. Every one of them is a loss. Because he wanted only one thing on this side of the ledger. That was Jesus Christ. That's the only thing he sought. The only thing he wanted, the only goal he had, was Christ. Nothing else was a prophet to him anymore. Nothing else was sought for by him anymore. I want to ask this because this is where people say, yeah, well, that's Paul. Of course. He's got to read this book and God's with him. You know, all the apostle thing and all this stuff. That's Paul. Is it possible that we can be just as singular in our desire? You can answer that question. I'm going to guess it's not always been that way. Sometimes we put a lot of things in the game column for us. A lot of things we live for. A lot of things we strive for. What has your heart? What is your heartbeat? Jesus made these comments once. He said, "...the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant man..." seeking goodly pearls. And he went out and found one pearl of great price. He sold all that he had and went and bought it. Inventory is easy when you have one thing in that column. Christ. He says in verse 7, whatever things are gained for me, I have counted loss for Christ. This is a fun thing in the Greek tense, perfect tense, that means permanent. He's not going to change his mind. He has counted them for loss. They're gone, they're done forever. He's never going to consider them anything else but a loss. And then he says in verse 8, if that's not enough, and I count them all things as loss, I keep on thinking that way. It's present tense now. I will not stop. I will not stop. You ask me tomorrow, it's still the same. You ask me a month from now, it's still the same. A year from now, it's still the same. I count all things but loss for the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Do you know Him? Do you want to know Him? Do you want to know Him more? Boy, that hits right here, doesn't it? This is the passage we're looking at here. He says, everything else is a loss. Now, let me explain the loss for a minute. That's not a zero. Most people say, well, zeros, that, that, that's, that's your loss. They're not there. Actually, he considers them detriments. The Greek word for this is detriments. They are things that cause damage. They are things that are violent to the ledger. He calls them dung later on, if you're following the King James Version. Rubbish. Garbage. They are worse than nothing, folks. They are something that smells bad and has to be thrown out. (laughs) In this context, he tells us, that's what I had in verse 4. I had confidence in the flesh. More than anybody else. I would set myself above anybody. I had confidence in the flesh. I was circumcised the eighth day. I persecuted the church. He goes on and on and on of these things. He says that's the law is blameless. You may say, well, Paul, if I looked at verse 3, I mean 4, verse 5, and verse 6, I would say there's nothing really bad in essence in what you're saying. Those aren't bad things. Paul used them in such a way. He said, I used all these things to provoke my confidence in the flesh. I wanted you to see Paul, is the reason I did him. I wanted greater gain from that by your attention. In other words, that whole side of the ledger was a picture of Paul. That was what you would see. His own portrait right there. All his trophies. Are now detriments to him. He says they're damaging to me. They, They damage my desire. And they cloud my eyes. And they do violence to my ambition. To know Christ. You see his mentality here? It's either more Paul or more Christ. And you see what he chose. It couldn't be both. He chose Christ. That's our study folks. Put your seatbelts on. This is powerful. Powerful expressions all the way through here. Here's how it starts to look in verse number 9. Or verse 8. Let's start with verse 8. Yea, doubtless I count all things for the loss of the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered. And that's not easy. That's a battle with self. I suffered the loss of all things and do count them as dung or rubbish or garbage that I might gain Christ. Watch. Listen carefully. He didn't suffer the loss of all things for the church. And he didn't suffer the loss of all things for Christianity. And he didn't suffer the loss of all things for a camp or anything else. He did it for who? Christ. For Christ. And he says, I want more. Verse 9, I want to be found in him. If somebody broke into your house today, which, by the way, the sheriff told me once, if anybody wanted to break into a house in Hillsdale, it's Sunday mornings. Because everybody's down here and all the houses are empty out there. I kind of laughed at him. But if somebody should be rifling through everything you own right now, Everything you own. Just think. They're going through your house. They're sifting through your cabinets. Or they're viewing what you watch on TV. Uh, you may say, what a weird guy this is. He, he goes into your computer. He checks your history. And he starts to see where have you been. He finds your bank book. And then he starts to see where you've been putting your money. He starts to examine everything there is about you. And he's exploring it. What if he came to the conclusion, all this guy talks about is Christ? That's what Paul means. I want to be found in him. If you examine my life on every single side, I only want one name to show in every department. That's Christ. Wow. I want to know him, he says in verse 10. I want to know him. The power of his resurrection Fellowship of His suffering. I want to be conformable to His death if by any means I might gain or attain to the resurrection of the dead. That little phrase there is, I want to come to ripeness. (laughs) I want to come to the ripeness. This is the actual fruit that's matured. I want it to be all about Christ. That's His one gain. That's His mentality. That's the one thing He wants you to find out about Him. He's in Christ. That's our study. More Christ. To know Him. To know Him. To know Him. Do you have that passion? If somebody sifted through your life right now, what would come after the word more? Because you have something there right now. What comes after the word more? What follows more to you? I hope by the time we're done here, Christ is the first thing you think. Heavenly Father, help us with this. It's a high calling, but you're not hesitant to give it to us. You do challenge us down to the very root of our soul. You shake us. You make us uncomfortable with these things. But you're not afraid to have it written in black and white for us to see, for us to learn, for us to talk about, for us to live by for us to desire too. You never meant for the Christian life to be followed by one person and everyone else sit back and watch. But your appeal all the way through Scripture is for us to step in those shoes and follow along, follow along, follow along. Lord, today, this is a day we can start if we haven't before. It's a good day to start fresh. It's a good day to say, I want more Christ. It may not be to the fullest measure that we're going to be, but at least at a start to say, I want more, Christ. I want more of you. And I pray, Lord, that uh, each heart in this room will have that passion, that heartbeat today, that desire above everything else, more, Christ. Help us with this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.